Well, this morning, uh, I'd ask you to turn to Psalm 110. I'm going to begin by reading this psalm. Psalm 110. This is a psalm of David we read in the superscript. Psalm 110, we read, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we give our attention to this psalm this morning, grant us deepened understanding that we may see your glory in the person of your Son, Jesus, as we taste of the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I've told a few people that I'm preaching from Psalm 110 this morning, and um, in that conversation, they have asked me, why? Why are you preaching from Psalm 110? And maybe you are wondering the same thing. So over the years, um, I've enjoyed studying the Psalms, preaching from the Psalms, but in the last couple of years, I've been paying more attention, much closer attention, to how the New Testament writers interact with the Psalms. So the main reason, there are a number, but the main reason we're in Psalm 110 today is because it's the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. Of all the scripture, it's the most referenced. Of all the psalms, it's the most referenced. Jesus saw this psalm as important. And as the gospel writers record the ministry of Jesus, they emphasize this in the way they construct the gospel narratives. Peter quotes from this psalm at the conclusion of his Pentecost sermon. And significantly, the book of Hebrews as a whole is shaped by Psalm 110. So this psalm, as we reflect on it, we'll see that this psalm is significant in establishing our understanding of who Jesus is, and so establishing our confidence in what Jesus is doing. It tells us something about who Jesus is and what he is presently doing. So my aim this morning is to help us see something of the significance of this psalm. Hopefully you'll be stirred to rejoice as you reflect on the gospel of hope that we find in this psalm. And so, because maybe it's a little obscure, maybe you're not familiar with it, what I'm hoping to do this morning is set something of the context, look a little of how the New Testament writers um, look to the psalm, and then we'll spend some time looking at the psalm in overview. It's not going to be like a detailed phrase-by-phrase, verse-by-verse. Tonight will be Psalm 110, part 2. Um, So we'll be reflecting some more on this psalm tonight as well. So to begin, I want to just briefly survey 
um, some, these obviously aren't all the references, but survey some of the references to Psalm 110 in the New Testament. And to look briefly at how the New Testament writers, how Jesus and the apostles are reading Psalm 110. I want, I want Jesus and the apostles, as it were, to teach us something of how to read Psalm 110. So firstly, if you turn to Matthew chapter 22, because I want to reflect on uh, and consider how Jesus teaches us to read Psalm 110, 110. So Matthew 22, what we're reading in Matthew here, 22, is also in Mark and Luke. In Psalm 22 and verse 41, we read this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he says to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? And now he quotes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So we see here Jesus is affirming that David is the human author who wrote the psalm and that he wrote it according to the spirit of God's, the spirit of the intent of the spirit of God. He wrote in the spirit. And we see that the psalm is speaking of the son of David, the promised Messiah that comes from the Hebrew, Mashiach, and the Greek word Christus or Christ. So Christ and Messiah are the same words. The coming Messiah, the coming son of David is being spoken of in this psalm. We also see that Jesus points to Psalm 110. Why? Why does he do this? To challenge the Pharisees' understanding of who the Christ would be. Who would be the descendant of David? And he does so, and in so doing, confronts the Pharisees' understanding. The son of David, in their understanding, would be someone like David, that is a human, but a little less than David because David was the great king. And so Jesus confronts them. How could the descendant of David be far greater than David? And they are confounded. They are silenced. And the gospel writers emphasize this reality. There is something about the descendant of David that the Pharisees did not understand. In Matthew 26, over a few verses, Matthew 26 and verse 63, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he was questioned by the high priest. Verse 63, Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus responds to the high priest here, and he links Psalm 110 to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And he indicates that Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 is about to be fulfilled. 
So, what David spoke of in his lifetime, a thousand years before Christ, is about to be fulfilled. The Spirit gave David the words of something that would happen a thousand years in the future. Secondly, I want you to consider how Peter leads, reads Psalm 110. So we've looked at Jesus reading Psalm 110 very briefly. Let's look at Peter reading Psalm 110 over in Acts chapter 2. So we see here in Acts chapter 2 the record of the day of Pentecost. The promised Holy Spirit has come and is now indwelling the saints. And this is a pretty amazing event. There's this sound of a mighty rushing wind. Um, It was about a week ago we had some pretty heavy winds gusting up to 55 miles an hour. And when you're in a solid 21st century, late 20th century house, in 50 mile an hour winds, it sounds even then somewhat intimidating, doesn't it? The sound of a great, mighty rushing wind. It's an intimidating sound. They heard this sound and divided tongues as a fire appeared and rested on each of the followers of Christ and they began to speak in different languages. And so the people from different nations that were gathered in Jerusalem who heard this great sound, who came together, heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. And they understood these things. And then Peter, as a representative of the apostles, uh, the representative of the gospel message that was being proclaimed, speaks. And so in um, Acts 2, beginning in verse 14, we see Peter standing and beginning to preach. And what does he preach? He first goes to Joel 2. And in Joel 2, he says, look, Joel talked about this thing that's happening, this this evidence of the Spirit's outpouring into the lives of the saints. And he's saying, this thing that's happening now is what Joel talked about. And Peter ends the quotation from Joel in verse 21, Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amazing event, giving of the Spirit. This is Joel 2. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Who is, the, who is the Lord we should call on? And so now Peter is going to spend time developing this. Who is the Lord? And so in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, this man Jesus, this man Jesus is not merely a man. This man Jesus is the Son of God, and he has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Peter quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 16 and then Psalm 110. In Psalm 16, he says, look, Psalm 16 is not talking about David. Look at Psalm, sorry, Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. So he says, Psalm 16 is pointing to the reality 
that the son of David is going to be resurrected. He's going to experience life. And then Peter moves from looking at Psalm 16 to looking at Psalm 110. He's looking to Psalm 110 because he wants to indicate that Jesus is risen, ascended, and to what place? What's what's this man Jesus who has been resurrected doing in heaven? Is he worshiping Yahweh? Bowing down to Yahweh? No. Verse 34 of Acts 2. For David... Oh, thank you. I, 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 I knew I had to remember to do that. And I didn't. Uh, verse 34. Thank you, Henry. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This man, Jesus, has been raised from the dead and is not worshipping Yahweh. He is sitting on a throne next to the throne of God the Father. A place of honor. Who will be saved? Those who trust in Jesus who is at this place of honor and of glory. In verse 36... Um, I'm missing a verse here. Sorry, but yeah, I'm going to begin verse 34. The emphasis here. David did not ascend into heavens. David was not the one resurrected. And David's not, not the one who ascended. No, it's Jesus is the one who ascended. The emphasis being Psalm 110 is speaking about Jesus. David is speaking about this future one. He's not speaking about himself. So we've looked at how Jesus leads us to read Psalm 110, how Peter leads us to read Psalm 110. I want to look thirdly and consider how Paul leads us to read Psalm 110. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Paul says, that God has worked His power in Jesus. How great is this power that has been at work in Jesus? Verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand. That's straight from uh, Psalm 110. Seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as Paul reads Psalm 110, he links the fact that Christ is at this place of authority over all powers. He links that to say, yes, so Christ is also the one in authority. He's the head over all things to the church as well. One other place I want to go to as we see Paul interacting with Psalm 110, is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25. Wow, this would be a couple of sermons in and of itself. This passage is just such a rich passage. But I just want to land in one verse. That's verse 25. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25. Paul says this, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in in subjection under him. So here we see Paul reading Psalm 110, recognizing that Jesus is the one elevated to this place of authority at the right hand of the Father, and that Jesus is the one who will overpower and bring into submission every evil force, every enemy against God. Jesus will bring them into subjection. That enemy includes death itself. Death is pictured as an enemy. So as we read Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is not merely talking about earthly kingdoms or earthly enemies. It's talking about spiritual enemies, Satan, and ultimately death itself. So we've seen how Jesus and Peter and Paul lead us to read Psalm 110. And finally, and fourthly, I want to consider how Hebrews leads us to read Psalm 110. To do this justice, we would have to do a sermon sermon series on Hebrews. Because Hebrews really is shaped by Psalm 110. We might say it's, it's a sermon of Psalm 110. And so the whole of Hebrews gives us guidance on how to read Psalm 110. So for this morning's message, obviously, um, I can't do that, but I just want to pull out two observations. Firstly, in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. We read here the only explicit statement about the intent of the writer. We might say, writer of Hebrews, what's your point? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have a, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So there's a statement about the, the central intent of Hebrews. What's his main point? His main point is to explain or exposit the significance of what we read in Psalm 110. One other observation that I'll limit myself to from Hebrews is in two places we see the writer of Hebrews joining together Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. We read that in chapter 1, the beginning quote and the end quote tell us that, and we also read that in Hebrews chapter 5. So I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 5 and 5 and 6. I can hear those papers, the pages of your Bibles turning, that's great to hear. I'll try not to go too fast. Um, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, here's the quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing there, he's, he's leading us to say, When you read Psalm 10, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, thanks John. When you read Psalm 110, Psalm 2 should be resonating in your mind. These these truths go together. And maybe that'll be something we'll develop a little more tonight. So there we see the, 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 the New Testament writers see a great significance in Psalm 
1.10. They see a great significance because they, they acknowledge this says something about Christ's present placement. Where is he? What is he doing? What exactly is his role? And also, on the basis of his role, what confidence can we have in him? How is he at work from this place of honor at the Father's right hand? Well, before we actually hit Psalm 110, there's one other thing I want to do. And um, I think it's helpful. I've debated whether this is helpful or not. Hopefully it will be helpful. I just want to do a quick, a super quick survey of the Bible up to David. Now, I mean super quick here. But I just want to pick some high points because I think that also shapes the way we read Psalm 110. And so I just want it to be fresh in your mind. How does the Bible begin? Genesis 1 through 3. God creates the world. He creates Adam and Eve. And in the garden, they enjoy a privileged position of fellowship with God. God's presence is with them. And we see Adam has a responsibility. And his responsibility is a kingly kind of responsibility and a priestly kind of responsibility. But how does David do as a king and as a priest? Doesn't do well at all, does he? He fails. And we inherit the results of his failure. Adam and Eve experience separation from God. They no longer enjoy close fellowship. They no longer enjoy the presence of God. Rather, judgment is due them because of their sin. But in Genesis 3, we see a note of hope. The snake will do something to the heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. The seed of the woman would crush the enemy of God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3. Jumping forward to Genesis chapter 12, the story of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises that through Abraham, God would bring blessing to all the nations. All the nations would experience blessing from God through Abraham. But as you read on in Genesis, we come to an interesting passage in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham travels. He travels from where he's living and he travels west and he comes to this land. But when he gets there, begins to live there, there's someone greater than Abraham. It's Melchizedek, a king. This king who is a priest is already living in this land. And Abraham comes to him and is blessed by him and worships the one true God in the presence of the priest and so offers a tenth of all of his possessions to this priest, Melchizedek. This is curious. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham, the one through whom this wonderful covenant of blessing is given. And yet... There is someone greater than Abraham? We don't read anything more about Melchizedek. It's like this blip on the screen. You could be reading it. Well, that's kind of curious and read on. But of course, when we get to Psalm 110, his name pops up again. And so this is a significant event. One other note. 
Abraham worships the one true God in the presence of Melchizedek, the great priest of the one true God, God Most High, after crushing enemies. These things go together, and, and we see that throughout Scripture, and we see that in Psalm 110 as well. Well, about 500 years after Abraham, God delivers his people out of Egypt. He establishes a covenant with the people through Moses. A significant part of this covenant is the establishment of the tabernacle and the priesthood. The priesthood act as mediators between the people of Israel and the Lord God. Yahweh is his name. So there's this important thing about the Sinai covenant. There's a priesthood of Levites. But this gets interrupted, we will see, as we look at Psalm 110. Jumping forward another 500 years to King David, God is making more specific how he'll fulfill this promise to bring blessing and deliverance through Abraham. It will be through Abraham. It will be through Jacob. It will be through Judah. It will be through the son of David. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read something of the particular promises to David. God makes some promises to David for David himself in his lifetime. And then in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 11, we see God making some promises that will be fulfilled after Abraham's lifetime. Promises that there will be a house and a kingdom and a throne that would last forever and ever and ever without end. Now we might think, well, maybe this is a, a promise by God talking about David's descendants. That David would have descendant upon descendant reigning on a throne on the kingdom. But does that last? Do David's descendants reign on a throne continually? No, the people of Israel are rebellious and they experience judgment and the kingdom falls apart and they're carted off. No, what is God promising here to David? He is not promising that a physical son will have a son, will have a son, and that those sons in perpetuity will reign on a throne in a kingdom. But he is promising that there will be a different kind of king, a king who will be eternal, a king who will reign and in a different kind of kingdom than what they're thinking of quite there, an eternal kingdom. So with these things in mind, let's go back to Psalm 110. We've looked at the way the New Testament writers, briefly we've looked at this, read Psalm 110. We've done a bit of a quick survey I want to again read Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. Before I read, let me make one comment. In your Bibles, the first Lord is in capitals, right? That tells us that this is the name of God. We're not sure exactly how it was pronounced, but we know the consonants. And so to communicate we, we say Yahweh. Capital, up the, the small caps, name of God, Yahweh, and then Lord, we might say master or sovereign one. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. One of the striking things that we see as we look at this psalm is that David is quoting divine speech. He's creating future divine speech about an act in the past. Let me grab that. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Uh, Hopefully this will illustrate. What's David doing? By the Spirit, David is writing something that God will say way in the future, a thousand years in the future, and God is saying this about something that has already been done the, in the enthronement of Jesus. So this is the perspective that David is writing from. The Spirit is giving the words, the future words of the Father to the Son to David to write. He's communicating the will of God and what he will do. And so the psalm is, it really has these two striking quotes of divine speech. In verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see here, God the Father's speech spoken of, of as Yahweh speaking, speaking to the Lord, the future eternal descendant of David. So these two declarations that we read in the psalm are then followed by verses that describe something of the activity of Jesus Christ between his enthronement and the day when all enemies of God will be completely and thoroughly subdued. So as we look at the psalm, we can break it down in two parts. Jesus is king and priest, and the activity of this eternal king and priest. So firstly, looking at Jesus as king and priest. This human descendant we read here in Psalm 110 would be like no other human ever. This man would be given status, a status of equality with Yahweh. Firstly, we see David calling him Lord. David's a king. He's an awesome king. He's the king that God made the covenant with. And yet David, by the Spirit, looks down to the future and says, a descendant of mine will be so great He won't just be equal with me. He will be so great that I will call him my Lord, my sovereign one, my absolute superior. And this this tenor of address is sometimes used in the Psalms to speak of addressing Yahweh. My Lord, my sovereign one, the greatest one worthy of my honor and submission. So David looks to the future and says, this descendant of mine will be my Lord. Why? Why would David refer to him as my Lord? Because, look at what happens. Yahweh says to him, sit at my right hand. 
Does this future descendant of David fall down and worship at the feet of Yahweh? Does he do what Isaiah did? I am undone. I am a filthy man. No. This future descendant of David will be one when he enters into heaven, will be given the place of honor. He will sit on a throne next to the throne of Yahweh. He doesn't stand in his presence. He sits on a throne in the presence of Yahweh. This communicates honor, privilege. It communicates blessing and it communicates equality. No one is like the one true God. No one should presume to be on equal status with the Creator, with Yahweh, God of all. But one does presume to do that. And it's Jesus. He sits at this place of honor and authority because Jesus is the Son of God. Then we see Yahweh expressing His will. What's His will? Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's a period of time from when Jesus sits at this place of authority to the time when all enemies will be thoroughly subdued. So the only way that this future human descendant of David would be given this place of supreme honor would be if he perfectly performed the priestly work. And, we so, and so we might say, had the grounds to enter into the heavenly temple, enter right into the presence of Yahweh and not be intimidated by his holiness, not be undone by the glory of Yahweh. And so there is this declaration in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the theme of the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek is very different as a priest than the high priests of the tribe of Levi. The high priest, once a year, on fear of death, would enter an earthly tabernacle or temple. Jesus enters once for all, not into an earthly temple, not into an earthly tabernacle, but he enters once for all into heaven itself. He enters into the heavenly temple, to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hopefully these references into Hebrews will stir you to go back and read Hebrews anew in light of Psalm 110. I just want to read two passages quickly here in Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then over in chapter 12 and verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. When Moses is at Mount Sinai, how does Moses respond? But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and in innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in this heavenly Jerusalem. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word of the blood of Abel. The priesthood of Jesus is not according to the Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek. So who's Melchizedek? He's the king priest. He's a royal priest. Melchizedek, his name, is a combination of two Hebrew words. Malak, Zedek. Malak, king, Zedek, righteous. King of righteousness. In Genesis 14, we see he's referred to as the king of Salem. He, he, where is he? He is where Jerusalem would be. He's the king of Salem, that location, but more than that, he is the king of peace. That's what Salem means. He's designated as priest of God most high. And we read in Psalm 10 that this priesthood would be a priesthood that would last forever and would introduce a fundamentally different order of worship. It would inaugurate a new way of relating to Yahweh. So in Psalm 110, we have an anticipation that there would be such a thing as an old covenant because there would be such a thing as a new covenant. There would be a new way to fellowship with God. There'd be a new way of access into the very presence of God. It would not be through human priests in a physical temple, but it would be through the one true eternal high priest, Jesus, who's ascended into heaven itself. So Psalm 110 we see here speaks of who Jesus is. What is his status? He is the royal priest, the priest king but it also says something of the activity of Jesus. What is Jesus doing right now? Because that's the perspective of this psalm. Psalm 10 is written from the perspective of the time between Jesus' ascension and enthronement and when all enemies are subdued. That's where we are. We are in, as it were, the time stamp or the time perspective of Psalm 110. So we can ask from Psalm 110, What's Jesus doing now? What's he up to from this place of supreme honor and glory? We see in Psalm 110, the power of Jesus in his rule is the power of Yahweh himself. Another demonstration that Jesus is God. We read in verse 2 of Psalm 110, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Or staff, the staff that represents the authority of the king. Yahweh sends forth, he, he authorizes, he gives power to the ruling authority of the king. We see something here of the mystery of the Trinity. Son and Father operating in a unified way, in yet some distinction between Son and Father. There being one God only. So Jesus rightfully sits at the Father's right hand and so rightfully possesses this scepter of authority. There is only one who can carry the scepter of authority of Yahweh and that is one who is on equal footing with Yahweh, His Son, Jesus. And so 
just as the Father affirms the reign of Jesus, sit at my right hand, so he authorizes the exercise of his power in the sending forth of his scepter. We, we see Paul living in this reality in Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul finds great confidence as he thinks about Jesus in this place of authority and of power. Jesus is in this place at the right hand of the Father. And so all the enemies of Jesus, all the enemies of the church, are no match for the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so we look to Jesus for our wisdom. We look to Jesus in hope. We look to Jesus to find strength. We don't look to our own strength to overcome Satan and his enemies. We look to Jesus who has overcome and is bringing into submission all his enemies. We see this taken up in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Those who trust in Jesus delight to serve him. They serve under his authority. Paul talks about the fact that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We serve under the one with power and we serve in his power as his representatives. And we do so joyfully because we see Jesus as he really is, the Son of God in glory and in power. So we see the power of Jesus is the rule and power of Yahweh. Another thing from Psalm 110, we see Jesus is presently ruling in the midst of his enemies. Interesting kind of combination of words. We think rule, zero enemies. Enemies, not ruling. But we see here something between the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus and the complete subduing. The enemy is defeated. They just haven't completely died. So Jesus is in the midst of the enemies. The fact that there are enemies does not diminish his power and authority. When we live in this world now and we see opposition to the church, when we experience personal spiritual opposition, when we look around the, the world and we turn on the news and we see the evil of war, we see the reality of enemies and we can think, where's Jesus? Like if he's really on the throne, what's up with this? And we can have great hope. None of those enemies are functioning in a place of power or authority. It's provisional power. They are functioning under the fact that Jesus is ruling in their midst. Putin has no power but under the authority of Jesus. There is no battle going on between Jesus and the forces of evil that oppose the church. There is no equality. Jesus is presently ruling in the midst of his power. And so there was no part of this universe, no power of nature, no power or opposition from humans or from evil forces or evil angels. There is no power that is able to oppose the authority of Jesus. We should have great confidence in this. And we can derive that confidence as Christians from Psalm 110. In God's divine wisdom, there is time between Jesus' enthronement and the subduing of all enemies. 
And we can be tempted to question God's wisdom. Why are you doing this? Because it's kind of miserable, right, sometimes being around the enemies of Jesus who are opposed to us. But one of the things God is doing in Jesus is showing the sure faithfulness of his word as he is accomplishing exactly what he said he would do in his time and in his purpose. We see this antagonism between Jesus and Yahweh and the enemies and Psalm 2. Let me just quote from Psalm 2 too. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. But we read in the next verse, and they scoff and ridicule their opposition. Or the next verses. It's nothing in comparison to the power and authority of Jesus. We also see that Jesus will certainly shatter all enemies. So he's presently ruling in the midst of enemies, and he will certainly shatter all enemies. Verse 5 of Psalm 110. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Every nation will be brought under judgment. Verse 6. I just want to look at one phrase here. Um, if you're using an ESV, it probably says something like this, and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is a valid translation, but I don't think it's getting at what this verse is saying. This word chiefs is actually a single word, head. It could be taken um, as a, the name's a corporate noun, collective noun, right? It can be taken as a collective noun, but I think particularly we should read it as a singular he will shatter the head who is over all the earth. He will crush the snake and crush death as well. The power of Jesus is supremely great. His power is not exhausted. He is not worn out in this battle. I think this is what verse 7 is getting at. Kind of enigmatic. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he'll lift up his head. There are some Old Testament images here. I think the idea is you're going into battle and you, you get refreshment from the water and you're invigorated to head back into the battle some more. The idea here is, I think, that Jesus has an enduring, ultimate, supreme power. He will not lose heart. He will not grow weary. He will surely and certainly shatter all kings and shatter the head who is over all the earth. So we as Christians today have every reason to trust in Jesus. Jesus was truly a man. He is a sympathetic high priest. Jesus was perfect, and he is our faithful high priest. Jesus is eternal, and he is our eternal high priest. Truly a descendant of Abraham, of David, but not merely a man. The Son of God who shares in Yahweh's power and authority and honor. And so we see here in Psalm 110, the Spirit of God revealing, not just to David, but now as well to us and encouraging us about the glories of God. God the Father and of his Son, Jesus. Let's pray.